Aloha Kako, and welcome to another edition of the Kanaka Express. My name is Colleen Gumapak, and I'd, first off, I'd like to thank Akaku because we're here on Maui uh, doing the show. And so, Chivo and the gang, a big mahalo to you for uh, shooting our show tonight. And I'd like to introduce my guest that I'm going to have, and I'm very excited about it because this is the first time that uh, on Kanaka Express we have had uh, men of this with this knowledge, stature, as well as heavyweights in the community. I'd like to introduce uh, attorney Dexter Kayama, who has uh, represented many people in the courts uh, today, up to today. And I'd like to introduce Dr. Keanu Sai, who has been on my show several times. And also Professor Kaleko Kaeo, who's a professor at Maui College, and he teaches Hawaiian studies and Hawaiian language. And so I'm very excited to have all of you, and welcome, gentlemen, for joining me tonight. Uh, we're going to be touching on a lot of information because uh, for those of you who have, I hope you've been in touch with the news and taking, uh, taking notes of what's been going on. There's been a lot of uh, action going on over on the island of Hawaii, especially up at Mauna Kea. And that's going to be the first thing that we're going to be talking about today. And uh, Dr. Sai, with uh, Mauna Kea, what, <clears throat> why is all of this happening there? You know, I know you talked about the Arab Spring. Is that taking place up at Mauna Kea? Well, the Arab Spring is a, it's a phenomenon that took place in the Middle East. I think, believe, I believe it started in Tunisia. And this was uh, young Arabs rising up against uh, domineering governments. You know? uh, what, when it was called the Arab Spring, it was actually addressing the fact that this rising up of consciousness was as a result of social media. So Twitter, Facebook, and all that. Um, you pretty much have the same effect through social media for Mauna Kea, but we don't call it the Arab Spring, I call it the Hawaiian Spring, okay? And it's gone viral, you know? So I have to uh, give it to the uh, younger generation. I mean, they're very, very proficient at technology, you know, very different than when we were growing up, yeah, or during our younger adult uh, age. But yeah, so it, it, it's getting the information out. It's drawing attention onto what is happening up at Mauna Kea, which is a desecration. Yeah. It started that way, and now it's starting to move into the legality of the desecration, specifically what does desecration mean within international law, so now we're getting into destruction of property. And to protect the destruction of, from destruction of property taking place with TMT, then we start to get into the arrests, naturally get into now unlawful confinement and also unfair trial during a, an arraignment proceeding. So it's starting to blossom. Uh, it started off on a particular uh, uh, base and it hasn't changed, it's just getting more refined. Mm. Now, um, Clay Core, are, are you surprised that they're, that the, um, it's mostly college students that are involved, that they're now stepping up and being counted on this? I'm, I'm not surprised at all. I, mean, I think as, as uh, Dr. Sai, Brother Keanu, and I think, you know, as educators for a long, long time, and I think we've always been waiting for this moment. I mean. Uh, as you say, the fruits of our labor, in a sense, in many ways. Um, you know, when you look at the leadership of those who, uh, who are really leading the charge of what's happening in Mauna Kea, and also much of the community that's, uh, that are involved, you know, you can clearly say their understanding, their education about the issues surrounding Mauna Kea, not just in the cultural sense, which is a huge it's the core element in really understanding as a Hawaiian how we're being, uh, I mean, our mountain being desecrated, and therefore it's a desecration of our people as a soul and our being as Hawaiians. But also when you listen to the young people, their understanding of the history today is way more deeper and progressive than it was five years ago, 
than it was 10 years ago, 15 or 20 years ago. So when you hear the young people today talk about, using the language of occupation, for example, using the language of where's the treaty, what annexation, you clearly understand that this generation, you know, it's not something that they went to college perhaps to learn, but I think this generation for several, several decades, this is something that they picked up as youngsters perhaps, and you know, many of them now in, in college or post-college, um, really have a way deeper grasp and understanding, I think, of these uh, uh, ideas, especially in regards to international law. And so what you see going on today is just a, it's just a progression of the consciousness of a people understanding their history, understanding their rights as human beings, understanding our, our place as, as humans, as Hawaiians, in our own homeland, um, uh, not asking, in a sense, for re-recognition, but stepping forward and saying, we, especially as Kanaka, um, we have uh, every moral, uh, historical, uh, any kind of right, in that, in that sense, to mm -hmm. say, um, you know, it's about time we stand up and say that what's happening on Mauna Kea shouldn't be happening just because, it's not just because it's bad, but also in, in the legal context, it's something that shouldn't be happening at all. And so, you know, I'm very excited to see what's going on. I'm very excited when you see social media and you see um, the young people in a community really um, articulating, really articulating in a very uh, knowledgeable fashion. Uh, what's going on, you know, so for me, I'm very excited and I, I don't, you know, it's not happening by chance. I think it's been happening because of just, you know, as, as, as you know, I know I'm with, with Keanu, we used to talk about this many, many years ago. It's like when you put the light on the room, eh, or you have the flashlight when you first go in and you can barely see in the darkness. But as the light starts to get, you know, brighter and brighter in the room, as, as once you start to see what's in the room, you cannot help but with, with greater understanding, have a better idea of where you need to go, what you need to say, what you need to, how we need to step forward. And so what you see going on really in the community is the light's going on. As you said, Hawaiian, wow, kako as a people. We're, uh, and it's hard to go back into the darkness once you've seen the light. Um, it's hard to go back to believing in falsehoods and, and, and lies when you already know the truth. You know, yeah. so I, 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 yeah. one thing I always say, the truth is so powerful. The truth will lead people to do whatever is necessary to be done because the truth is something you cannot deny. And that's really, that's really for our people, I think, the, the, the core element that what's going on is our people are awakening to the truth. Well, one, one of the things that keeps going, being replayed in my mind is when I first met uh, Dr. Sai, uh, in his presentations, he uh, talks about the experience that you had at the World Court of Arbitration and then the meeting that you had with the ambassador from uh, Rwanda and them offering to take it to the UN and so forth. And, and you said, what did, what did you tell the, uh, the ambassador when he offered that and uh, what has taken place since? Well, that was December of 2000. So that was 15 years ago. And uh, this was on the heels of the, of the last day of the hearing in the Permanent Court of Arbitration in the Netherlands. And he had accessed the records of the pleadings and submitted to his government, made copies. It was made open to the public. And that's when he asked us to have a meeting with him in uh, uh, Brussels, Belgium. So we caught the train from The Hague down to Brussels because he's going to present some information that he said was very, very important. So after sitting down with the ambassador, uh, he tells me that his government has reviewed everything and it is clear Hawaii's occupied. You know, and he said that this cannot be tolerated because Rwanda understands what happens when the international community does not step in on an international violation until it's too late. And he was making specific reference to roughly 800,000 people being slaughtered through genocide yeah, um, uh, between the, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And this ambassador, Dr. Bio Zagawa, was a Tutsi survivor. Okay, he's a Tutsi survivor. And uh, he said that he has been authorized by his president through the Minister of, Foreign, Minister of Foreign Affairs to him to convey to us that Rwanda is prepared to report to the United Nations General Assembly the prolonged occupation of Hawaii. Now, 
that right there was, it, it took me aback. It was like, whoa. You know, because what was interesting is back home, people thought we were crazy talking about these things. <laughs> and here's somebody saying, let me take you to the next mountain. And it's not where I need to teach them before we can have a conversation. He's already saying, let's go. So I had a short meeting with my legal team and I sat back down and I conveyed to the ambassador, please convey to your president our sincere gratitude, but we cannot accept this offer at this time because our people back home have no clue of Hawaii's status as an independent state being occupied. We've been Americanized, we've been brainwashed, we've been indoctrinated, we need to address that. So we need to go home and begin re-education. That's what I told him. And we're gonna engage head on the brainwashing that took place in our schools. And he thanked me. I said, no, thank you. <laughs> I might call you later, <laughs> but our work is cut out for us. Yeah. That very next month in, uh, that was January of 2001, that's when I enrolled, enrolled in the University of Hawaii Political Science Department as an unclassified student, because I missed the deadline to be classified, but I began to take coursework so I can, you know, come right over into my master's program once I'm classified as a graduate student. And that is when I went head on, head on with this indoctrination. And I had the upper hand because we came from the world court. You know, it's not like I'm gonna prove a point. I had an agenda to address the brainwashing and I knew what was being taught before because I got my bachelor's degree back in 1987. So I was there when everything was going on. So I know what is being taught and I know what was right and I know why this is wrong. And that began the process of engagement. Uh, it forced people to rethink, yeah? And I think the University of Hawaii, not that I think, I know the University of Hawaii was that perfect uh, uh, forum because it promotes analytical rigor. It promotes pushing beyond the, uh, uh, the, the borders or the, the boundaries. It, it gets people to start to ask the right questions and don't be afraid. It's called academic freedom. You know, you, you're going to get into it. And I can honestly say, uh, you know, Professor Kaleikoa Kaya over here and others who have been teaching this, you know, Dr. Willie Kauai, uh, Donovan Prezzo, you know, Niklaus Schweitzer, professor, um, Professor Williamson Chang at the law school, um, Dr. Sidney Iaokia, uh, Dr. Kamana, uh, Kamana Kra um, uh, Beamer, you know, so it, it just keeps spreading and spreading and, and, and to see, like Kaleko says, the fruits of our labor, it's, 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 it's almost like you're watching a child, you know, starting to not crawl anymore, starting to run. <laughs> and you're going, yeah, keep running, <laughs> you know, but it, it was like we feel, and I, and I still teach, that new ones are coming up. And I'm finding that when new ones are coming into school, they are much more ahead than the ones that were there before. So you're taking it always beyond where you started, you know. And you kind of gauge the students because one, one particular uh, <coughs> teacher, um, actually two, Amy Peruso, okay, she was uh, uh, from Ililani High School, teaches this. Uh, Dr. Umi Perkins, Kamehameha Schools, teaches this. And what is important is that's at the secondary level. Then we find other people teaching it at the intermediate level, at the elementary level. And the key is they're teaching it not in a political way, but in a historical way. Mm. Yeah? It cuts through where you don't have to just talk to the natives. No, you talk to Hawaii's history. Yeah? So one thing about Amy Peruso, um, Amy Peruso, She's awesome. What's interesting about Amy when she teaches it at Mililani High School, a lot of her students are children of military, Schofield Barracks. Yeah? So she has to present it where she doesn't alienate. And some of her best students are those children <laughs> yeah. of, of the military. You know? So it, 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 it's, it's, it's great to see this develop. Yeah? And, uh, yeah, it's it's good. Well, I well I for one have, you know, have seen the changes in the vocabulary that's being used, like yeah, how yes. you collect, collect, said. 
because before everything was uh, one, one form of language to now understanding occupation, uh, annexation, all of these terms now coming out. And as a result of that, especially up at uh, Mount Akea, you have you know, all these young, young people that are up there and their parents and their kupuna, their grandparents, are trying to play catch up now, you know, with them to understand what these young, these young men and women that are doing up at Mauna Kea and how they're doing it. And uh, it's also now forcing the uh, makua and the, uh, the kupuna to, to learn. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, you know what I think as well that needs to be told is as you become aware and as you start to take action, it leads you to other areas that how do you implement the action, yeah? So you need tools out there. And, 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 and Dexter is, is an attorney. Dexter speaks to that language but now uses it within the legal framework. So, so uh, a person like Kaohokahi, Kanua, and Lanakila, they may not have the, the, the knowledge or the expertise to apply their knowledge. All they know is, hey, we got to do something. But then you get somebody like Dexter stepping in, and he provides, here, this is where we can take it. Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that, that took place up at Mount Akea, and I talked to Lanakila and Kahokahi about this, is that when they went up there, they really had no plan, you know, when they started this whole thing. And, uh, you know, so the understanding and the arguments that they were using was that this was a religious uh, site, this was a sacred site, this was a cultural site, and so forth. And so, you know, Dexter, you filed a complaint on behalf of Kaho'okahi uh, up at Canada, and uh, Keanu was able to uh, accompany Kaho'okahi and file it. Can you address that, how you're able to bring the religious, the cultural aspect under this filing of uh, war crimes? Sure, let me try. But before I do, uh, first I want to thank Maui for inviting us here, um, the shores of Pi'ilani, Maui Nui Akama. Um, thank you, I'm honored to be here in Akaku. Secondly, uh, with respect to the uh, evolution, as I call it, of our citizenry, um, this information is beginning that evolution. And what's easier, I think, for the younger children, and I think why that education is important, is because that younger generation isn't burdened with the inculcation that we are all burdened with. Mm -hmm. um, and so that they receiving this information now assists them in the expedition or expediting their evolution. So that's why they're far ahead of us. Um, as um, Kahoka'i said before OHA, I think it was last week, he says, what did you expect? We are a product of these charter schools. <laughs> We're learning this information at the younger yeah. age. So what would you expect once we become armed with this information that we would do something about it? And that's what they're doing. Um, and I think to their credit, not only are they better informed at their age than we were or I was at, my, at that same age, but um, they also have that tool as you were talking about of the social media and they're expert at it. Um, well, a lot more expert than I am. So they know how to implement and they know how to use those tools and, and disseminate the information. Now with respect to the question you asked me, Kali, um, uh, of course it first started out with um, Lanakila and Kaho'okai, and we're just focusing on them right now because it is a lot more that has an interest and a stake in the Mauna. Um, they did have a plan, they just didn't necessarily have a strategic strategy plan. They didn't have it all mapped out, but they knew they wanted to protect Mauna of Akea from any further desecration, any destruction. Um, and I know Kaho'okai already had a background. He had the information and Lanakila to, to an extent as well about the prolonged occupation. So it was just a matter of approaching myself, approaching Dr. Sai, and actually just melding all that information and how to implement it, as Dr. Sai said. Um, so, of course, their objective was to stop the construction of the TMT. Their, also, their objection wa objective was to prevent any further arrests that occurred on April. Um, and, and so a plan was developed and they authorized us to go forward with was a letter to cease and desist to be for, um, presented to the council, legal council for the TMT Observatories, LLC. Um, so that was um, sent to council, I believe it was April 16th of 2015. 
copies of that cease and desist letter was also served on the Board of Regents of the DLNR, um, the Maui County Police, as well as the International Criminal Court and the Canadian government. The whole idea was to bring this awareness, this awareness now that these young men and these young people have about the prolonged occupation um, and the illegal prolonged occupation and how that the TMT was in fact violating international law with its construction already taking place and the proposed uh, continued construction. Once that notice was delivered, um, I'd like to think it did have a positive effect because shortly thereafter, of course, they delayed any further um, construction of the property for the time being. Um, it became, we became aware through a reliable source that they were beginning or they were going to begin construction or preparation for constructions again on May 18th. Uh, we learned that sometime on or about May 7th, May 8th. So in order to protect um, both the, the protectors of the Mauna um, and to bring this greater awareness, um, Kaho'okai authorized me and um, with Dr. Sai's consult consultation, we prepared a uh, complaint for war crimes. Um, and as you know, um, Dr. Sai and Kaho'okai did travel to Canada and did present the war crimes complaint to the Canadian authorities, and if Dr. Sai can speak more to about the, the details of that. But that complaint was delivered, I think, on or about May 11th or 12th. It was last Wednesday. Yeah, last Wednesday. Yeah. So we could go from today. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I can't say that it's that is directly connected, but one good result from it was that no construction took place on May 18th. So right now there's a continued delay of the construction. And that continued delay, of course, works to the benefit of the protectors of Mauna Wakia. Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that also uh, comes into play that's really important was the uh, meeting that the Office of Foreign Affairs had the trustees. Mm -hmm. Just prior mm -hmm. to uh, that happening, uh, you delivering that complaint to the Canadian government. And, you know, I watched the testimony, it was awesome. but. You know, can you give us uh, kind yeah. of a synopsis of... Uh, unfortunately for the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, <laughs> here's what fortunately, <laughs> is that the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, you know, sadly are a couple of steps back in regards to what's been going on in the community and the reawakening. And I used to reawakening not in the sense that, you know, uh, that we had been, you know, I mean, like we were totally fast asleep, but the idea that you know, as, as it's like our eyes are getting more clear and clearer as we see. And really, unfortunately for the Office of Foreign Affairs, uh, and let me just say first, you know, thank the trustees who <coughs> did, in fact. There were trustees who actually were very uh, <coughs> concerned about what's going on in Mauna Kea and really tried to take a stand in regards to the Office of Foreign Affairs rescinding their past position in regards to the TMT project. Uh, in the past, I think in 2008, 2007, the Office of Foreign Affairs had a quasi-support position in regards mm. to the construction of TMT, and really had to do with cash. Um, so at the last, uh, this was in, um, I guess about three weeks ago now, two, three weeks ago, um, testimonies were taken, um, and you know, Trustee Lindsay from Maui, in fact, um, working with uh, Trustee Ahuna from Kauai, along with uh, Leahu Isa, a trustee, I think, at large on Oahu, um, really were the three who wanted the Office of One Affairs, in fact, to take a stance in opposition to the TMT. First, to rescind their past decision, but also to oppose what's going on, to stand in alignment and to stand in support with those who are up on the mountain. And unfortunately, uh, they didn't have the votes. And to, uh, oppose. to oppose, to oppose, right. they had the votes to rescind. Right. Um, you know, what's really sad was I think those who were not in support of op opposing um, don't. Their main concern, and I found really trouble, really troubling for me. You know, as as, as a Hawaiian, uh, had to do with the fact that they were concerned about future negotiations. <laughs> so. Nothing to do, what which mean? is a whole other. This is a whole other game. What, yeah. do, what do you mean by future negotiations? Well, they're 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 in, they're in negotiations Money? over over uh, monies in regards to the so-called Hawaiian Kingdom government lands, the city lands, uh, which includes, of course, Mauna Kea. Um, and so they felt that if they took a position which would oppose the TMT, 
it would confuse and would weaken their positions in negotiating with the state. No, I mean, of course, even for them to negotiate on a behalf is a whole other question. But the point being for me was that they had missed much of the testimony that had gone on uh, at the OHA board on those two days of testimony where you had high school students, high school students that came out from these charter schools again and came out and gave clear historical and political analysis of the past and the future. And so, you know, I mean, that's the thing to me that's most empowering, that this language that at one time was spoken by PhDs and grad students are being spoken now by high school students who cannot, I mean, it, the, the truth is so empowering that even a young student at 16 can see clearly the writings of the law in regards to what's illegal and what is legal, what's unlawful and what is lawful. And so, sadly for the OHA trustees, um, they weren't able to appreciate our history in the same way. And I, I find that troubling, and especially when you have so-called you know, leaders in the so-called Office of Hawaiian Affairs who have been involved with struggle in the past. Um, and I, as I had told one of the trustees who was involved with the struggle of Kaholawe, and I asked that trustee, and I said, how much would you have negotiated for as an activist over Kaho'olawe, how much money would you have taken to allow the military to continue to bomb and desecrate the island? And of course, the person didn't respond, but they could not, they could not make the connection with the fact that that's really what's going on with Mauna Kea. You know, is there a price out there for Hoynes? And when you hear from the young, see the young know, our humanity, our dignity as human beings, how can we deny the history of our kupuna? in 1843, as we all understand, were able to take these little small islands in the middle of the Pacific and through this process gain international recognition as a nation state. How can we now turn back and pretend that that history mm. never occurred? How can we look at the Kuei petitions and say what our kupuna did uh, to me was one of the greatest feats of our people? When people talk about Hawaiians, you kind of get along and you, you, know, you don't have unity. All you got to look at is the petitions. So the lessons being, sadly, how can the Office of Foreign Affairs trustees deny that history? And you see, what you see what's going on with the young and those who have grown up with this information, this is part of their identity. Mm. You know, for, for them, um, understanding this history really is at the core at the core of their politics today. So they're not, it's not that they're being reactive to what's going on. I think what they're being is actually they're being proactive. They've actually been proactive with their knowledge of history, their knowledge of uh, especially the political history of Hawaii. And so what I, what I, what I, what I say, what's going to happen in Hawaii, it's going to get bigger and bigger. Um, now, the question is going to be, of course, how will the Americans in Hawaii respond to this? I think that's the question. But I know what you see going on the mountain will spread. The mountain is, has just happens to be the focal point at this, this moment and hour. And that's because the issue of a Mauna Kea is not just about the desecration. The bigger issue, of course, is there is desecration happening there because our political rights as a people are being infringed upon. It's because we understand that that mountain doesn't belong to astronomers. That mountain belongs to our people. So once you understand that, you understand it's not an issue of convincing them that you need to protect our mountain because it's sacred. It's really an issue of us reclaiming our history and identity. It's really about an issue of us saying, hey, we understand that mountain belongs to our people. We understand, as I, as I said, you know, we know there's no treaty of annexation. We know we never gave consent to what's going up on the mountain. We know they have no title to that mountain, as I say, you know, therefore there's no TMT. This is very simple, not, and all of those things are, can proven without a doubt to be factually true. And so really what you see again, I say, you know, this is a proactive stance, and, I, and I'm very excited and um, really honored to see uh, these new faces, you know, with an old history and memory coming forward, and you know, really, I, I think, um, pushing, pushing all of us uh, to take that step as a nation, as a nation step, to re 
reborn ourselves, to reawaken ourselves, to reimagine our future in a way uh, that that is uh, unencumbered. And so, you know, I think this is a very important moment in time, and I'm, I'm very happy I'm here to be part of this. And I'm, I'm very, very excited to see what happens in the next couple of years, specifically these islands, as more and more people come aboard. And not just Hawaiians, you find many not Hawaiians, as they start to learn the truth, they, they're the first ones who will say, I'm behind you guys all the way. Because they, yeah. they can see a future, a better future, than the one that we, we were forced to exist in in Hawaii today. That's really what it's about. Well, one of the things that, uh, that is, has been very important in the teaching of this history was your history book, uh, Dr. Sai's history book that he wrote as, uh, it's kind of like a watered-down version of your dissertation called Uamaokea. And that book was has been used and continues to be used in educating uh, these young Hawaiian uh, people that are going through high school and as well as college. And I think this is this was able to also provide information to Kahu'okahi um, in his understanding and knowledge of which when the Canadian complaint was uh, was brought up, you and Kahu'okahi went to uh, Ottawa to uh, serve this to the Canadian government. And I think some people, not some, I know that a lot of you don't understand or haven't read the complaint and can you Talk about that and kind of talk about the different war crimes that were, were was identified in the complaint and how that comes about. Okay, so the um, when you talk about war crimes, war crimes stem from international law regarding conflict, international armed conflicts. Okay, that's the term that's used. But international armed conflicts does not necessarily uh, limit its application to to an armed conflict where you have two states are fighting, okay? Open war. It also applies to territory of a country that has been occupied, yeah? Either partially or totally, even if it's done without resistance. That's important, and that's Article Two of the Geneva Conventions. And G Article Two of the Geneva Conventions basically is a reflection of customary international law, where the lessons learned from World War I up to World War II into the 1949 Geneva Convention. So it is understood as customary international law, okay? So how does this play with people's understanding today? People think Hawaii is the 50th state. People think Hawaii is a part of the United States. History says otherwise. Okay? So what happened in 1893, what was overthrown in 1893 was the government by the United States, not the state called the Hawaiian Kingdom, okay? The government of the Hawaiian Kingdom was overthrown illegally, not the state. What that means is international law then would still apply. Okay. Now the only way that you can acquire the Hawaiian Kingdom as a state, you basically need a government there to negotiate a treaty with to transfer and join the United States of America. You need that. That's why a treaty is very important. And that's why Kaleko is saying no, exactly. no annexation. Exactly. There is no treaty. Okay. What all you have is the United States Congress passed the law in 1898 during the Spanish-American War to take Hawaii okay, in order to fight the Spanish in Guam and the Philippines. To use the words of the senators in a, in a secret session on May 31st, 1898, in the Congress, they referred to seizing Hawaii or pre-occupying Hawaii as a military necessity. Okay, that's important. That's not annexation. That's not acquiring a country that's joining you. That's called seizure. That's precisely what happened when Germany seized Luxembourg in 1914 to launch attacks against the French. Okay. Luxembourg didn't resist. Luxembourg was occupied for four years from 1914 to 1918. What happened to Luxembourg in those four years is precisely what happened to Hawaii on August 12, 12 noon, 1898. That's the point of demarcation right there. So international law recognizes that was the beginning of America's control of Hawaii, which is occupation, effective control. So fast forward today, you still have the Hawaiian kingdom as a state that still exists, but through Americanization, through indoctrination, through inculcation, that memory 
had become obliterated. Obliterated until it became resurrected. So really all this is about is the Hawaiian kingdom as a country still exists. Okay, so if the Hawaiian kingdom still exists, then how do you explain America being here? It's called occupation. And occupation preserves the continuity and sovereignty of an occupied state. No different than the United States government, the United States military overthrowing the Iraqi government in 2003, but by overthrowing the Iraqi government that did not equate to the overthrow of Iraq as a state. It's called occupation. So what we've had since 1898 to the present was the non-compliance to the law of occupation. When you don't comply with the international law of occupation, as it applies specifically to one particular case, public land, public real estate that belongs to the government of the occupied state, you're not supposed to destroy it. Okay? That's the rule. You are not supposed to destroy it. And if you destroy it, meaning you dig it up, you put fixtures on it, that's called destruction of property, that is a war crime. Okay? Now, the war crime doesn't apply to America because you don't prosecute the United States of America. What you do is you prosecute individuals who destroyed that property, people who dug the hole, <laughs> people who erected, people who ordered the erection of that telescope. That, that's all part of the war crime. So here we're getting into the legal sophistication. Okay? When you come to the realization Hawaii was occupied, okay, got it, check. Okay, our government was illegally overthrown, got it, check. Somebody is now trying to put another telescope, and, and uh, a 20-story telescope, two stories into the ground, 18-story above the ground. That's called destruction of property. That's called evidence of a, that's evidence of a war crime about to be created, okay, about to take place. Check. What do we do? Well, you bring it to the attention of entities or an entity that has the ability and the authorization to investigate and ultimately prosecute that violation. That's what drew Canada into this because one of the partners of the TMT, which has just recently been voted in as a full partner, full partner. <laughs> okay, it's an astronomy group from Canada, is on Canadian territory. Okay. Canada created a war crime statute. Okay. A war crime statute that can investigate and prosecute war crimes committed abroad by Canadian citizens or the victims being Canadian citizens. In this case, you have the Canadian Astronomy Group who is committing the war crime along with the other five partners. And they can't say they didn't know because Dexter already provided a cease and desist, fully disclosing as constructive notice should that these are war crimes. So what, what Canada also can do is not only investigate and prosecute war crimes committed by a Canadian national, but they can also prosecute, investigate and prosecute crimes committed abroad, war crimes, even if it has no connection to Canada, meaning the victim or the uh, 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 perpetrator are not Canadian nationals. Hmm. And they call that universal jurisdiction. And that comes under what is called the International Criminal Court, where countries around the world who, who joined the International Criminal Court, it's about 130 of them or so, Canada's one of them. And they have all accepted the principle that war crimes cannot be committed anywhere in the world with impunity, meaning without being in check. Yeah. And that's why this universal jurisdiction basically allows countries to investigate crimes committed abroad even if it has no connection. So Ko'okahi is gonna be the complainant. And Ko'okahi is not Canadian. Ko'okahi is Hawaiian, he's a Hawaiian subject and a protected person under the Geneva Convention. These are the, the terms that you have to provide in, in, in the complaint. And the perpetrator is uh, a corporation from Canada. One of the one corporations, of one, of yes. one of them, exactly. So now it's not only an uh, attempt to destroy property, because it's an attempt right now. They're not fully constructed as far as the TMT. 
But you can also add to that complaint the war crime of unlawful confinement okay, and unfair trial. That Kahokahi can claim to be the victim. Right now, Kahokahi is not necessarily the victim of the destruction okay, of, the, of the mountain, because that mountain belongs to the government of the Hawaiian Kingdom. But he has rights in that mountain called native tenant rights, but he's not necessarily can be the, the victim. The victim is actually the Hawaiian government that is absent. Yeah? That's the victim. But the destruction of property is a war crime, whether you're the victim or not. You got to report it. But as a result of Ko'okahi and 30 others trying to prevent the destruction, further destruction of that property, now they've become the victims. Yeah? And that's what is called unlawful confinement and unfair trial. So um, Dexter went ahead and uh, uh, put together the complaint. And he asked that I put together a war crimes report to accompany the complaint. Yeah? And what was important for the war crimes report was to explain to the, to the Minister of Justice, you know, the, uh, the Attorney General of, of, um, of Canada, and to the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, because they have a special section that investigates criminal investigations for war crimes. Explaining to them as if you're talking to people who know nothing about Hawaii. And you have to explain pretty much everything I, I explain here, but in great detail. Where's the conflict? If not at war, where you're fighting, what type of a conflict is this, international armed conflict? If it's occupation, if it took place without resistance, why is that the Hawaiian Kingdom as a state still exists? Why, when, when did the Hawaiian Kingdom become a state? And as a result of this, I also drew attention on, because the Hawaiian Kingdom exists as a state, there is an 1851 treaty between Great Britain and the Hawaiian Kingdom that also applies to its dominions, which includes Canada. Okay? And that treaty is still in effect if the Hawaiian Kingdom still exists. So my war crimes report is putting this all together. And it's basically trying to educate them on something they probably knew nothing about. And you have to speak the language. So we're up in uh, uh, Canada. We were supposed to have gone up with Dexter, but Dexter had a, a hearing that he couldn't get out of. So Dexter asked if I could accompany uh, in his stead, uh, Ko'okahi. And I was there in case any questions come from the investigators, which Ko'okahi wouldn't be able to answer. Yeah. You know what? He could. <laughs> Absolutely. Ko'okahi can. But I was just there to make sure he can. And if I could help him, if I could. <laughs> so uh, when we uh, submitted the paperwork to the Department of Justice, there's a war crimes unit. We also met with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. So this was on a Wednesday. And uh, we go into the headquarters. It's like their FBI, federal level. And we go into an interrogation room, okay, with all the paperwork ready. And the first thing, the, the, in a way, it was funny how they, it was almost like they were playing good cop, bad cop, yeah? Because I think what they're doing is they're testing us if we know what we're talking about. Because when you're talking war crimes, that's a serious allegation. You don't want some crackpot coming off, making an allegation, starting something, and the Canadian government is caught off guard. So, it, so the first question posed was, where's, 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 where's the fighting? Where's the armed conflict? Where, who, who's fighting? Where, where, where's the blood? Like, like he says, Syria. Yeah, one of them said that. I said, well, actually, you don't have to have war crimes committed uh, only in, in, in uh, armed conflicts where they're fighting. Also, Article 2, Geneva Convention, also can take place in territory that is occupied either partially or totally, even without resistance. Mm -hmm. And then the other investigator looked at me and he nodded. Yep. So that's the good cop. That's the bad cop. <laughs> <laughs> then they kind of switch roles. And then after a while, they just laid it out. And they, it was something they can't deny because we're talking the language. That, that's important. It's, it's legal sophistication and political sophistication because we're speaking to a very complex issue and we're just getting the information to them, meaning you're the one supposed to do the full investigation, not us. And then they turned to Kohokahi. He's the war crime victim. And they asked him, have war crimes been committed against you? And he says, yeah. Unlawful confinement, unfair trial, and destruction of property. And he spoke with clarity. I was like, right on Kohokahi, you know. <laughs> so they took the information and always said, we're just here to report. Now, 
in order to determine that war crimes have not been committed, all you got to show that Hawaii is a part of the United States. You can show that. There are no war crimes. Mm -hmm. We're not pushing an agenda. <laughs> We're just bringing it to your attention. And by the way, Kaokahi has claimed his rights under the 1851 British-Hawaiian Treaty. And that's still in existence. And what came out of it, we left. It was perfect. It was great. So I asked Kaokahi, I said, hey, so how was it? What was the experience? He said, wow. It was like he experiencing he experienced something real. Like <laughs> this is for real. This is not theory. This is not talking about war crimes on Akaku just for the sake of talking about it. Real consequences. So I I I, I, I have a lot of respect for this young man. And I found by spending time with him, he 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 knows my family from Kona. Yeah. And I was like, wow, there's that connection. And then um uh, then uh I said, you know, you're very well versed in this information. I mean, we're actually having conversations. I don't, I don't feel I need to teach you in order to converse with you on what we should do. But I'm just talking and you're talking. And he tells me, he says, Keanu, I took your class about three years ago. I said, really? Intro to the Hawaiian Kingdom, Hawaiian Studies 255 <laughs> <laughs> online. I said, that's why you understand these things. I like I'm having a conversation. And he went even beyond that. And the required book in that class was Ua Maukea, you know, yeah. the Hawaiian textbook. So I really found Kaokahi is not being driven by anybody but himself. Mm -hmm. That's important. He's not doing this because somebody said. Yeah? He's doing this because he knows what he's doing. And people are stepping up and assisting him to accomplish what he is trying to do. And that's what I was there for. That's what Dexter, I'm, I'm sure Dexter was there. I mean, any mana'o on that? Yeah. Um, uh, again, Kahokai, like I said, um, he'll ask me questions, but he already has the mindset of what he wants to accomplish. So he's pretty much telling me this is where he would like me to go. And of course, my job is to facilitate that. Um, what's important, and I think what's interesting about Keanu's conversation with the Royal Canadian Mounted Police is that, and I found that same experience with the International Committee of the Red Cross, is uh -huh. that yeah. they understand that international language. So we need not explain that to them. They understand the law concerning occupation and, and whether it's prolonged, illegal, or whether it's by armed conflict or not. They just need to know All the facts. we need to do is provide them the relevant legal facts. Yeah. And that's why our knowledge of the history, as Kalekoa said, is so important, because that's the information that they don't have. Once we provide them that history, they can connect all those dots and say, you know what, you're correct. We need to start our investigation. or We need to do or comply with our regulations on how we move forward with this. So. That's what's interesting about that. They already understand that. Um, um, I might differ just a little bit with Keanu about um, the violations that's already committed. I, can, I think the TMT has already committed some destruction of property with some of their yeah. pre-construction yeah. moves. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's already uh, desecration and con destruction that's occurred. And that's in the complaint. Right, and that's in the complaint. Yeah. And part of the reason the complaint was, was submitted is because we were trying to prevent further destruction. Mm -hmm. Um, what's also true is that at that time when the complaint was submitted, um, Kahokai and 30, 31 other people, of course, were arrested on the Mauna Kea. Um, that is unlawful confinement. Um, and finally, um, after their arraignment on May 7th, they all were then subjected to the unfair and, unfair and regular trial uh, by the state courts. So all of those had been committed at the time the complaint was filed. Now, what some of the viewers may not understand is that destruction of property, unlawful confinement, and the deprivation of a fair and regular trial are all listed by the International Criminal Court under the Hague and Geneva Conventions as being war crimes. And Canada, which actually adopted the jurisdiction of the ICC, the International Criminal Court, or acceded to their jurisdiction, also adopts those same rules as well. So in the Canadian, um, Canadian War Crimes Code, it actually adopts that war crimes includes all of these things, whether it's destruction of property, unlawful confinement, or a deprivation of fair and regular trial. So we were not only invoking the International Criminal Court rules, we were also invoking the rules under Canadian authority as well. If I can just add on that, a lot of people, when you first hear the word war crime, it's like a punch in the face. Mm -hmm. What? Because when you hear war crime, what may come to mind is the Holocaust. Yeah. The, the, the execution of Jews, mass execution. That's a war crime, but that's not the only war crime. 
And war crimes are not an open-ended statement. War crimes are specific, you know. So unlawful confinement is a war crime that applies to an entity that is unlawfully confining someone or arresting them, okay? If that person or entity has no authority to do what they did, that's unlawful, okay? If there is a court case going on, okay, in a perceived court, okay, that is not properly constituted, that then creates an unfair trial, which is a war crime. Now, where did that experience come from to come out with that particular war crime being unfair trial? It came out out of the experience of Germany, World War II. Germany was creating German courts in occupied territories applying German law, okay? You do that, you can't get a fair trial because any judgment coming out of this fabricated court, okay, is unlawful, therefore getting an unfair trial. So there is a history of every war crime that is stated. It's not just, hey, you committed a war crime, like an open-ended statement. It has to be specific because every war crime also has to meet the threshold of evidence needed to convict. Yeah? So you have to have probable cause, you know, just like any other criminal case. And there are elements of the crime. You know, so these are not things that, that, that you just throw out. But I've met up with a lot of people in Hawaii who don't understand the word war crime, and they assume certain things when it is completely wrong. Mm -hmm. yeah? It is a war crime, and it's defined as a war crime, and this is why it applies. So I think that with the, 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 the dialogue now moving beyond Hawaii being occupied, you know, now we're bringing in the word war crime. Because, you know, when, when, when the word prolonged occupation yeah. was first brought out, let's say, 10 oh. years ago, <laughs> they're going, that's like getting punched in the face. What? What are you talking about, occupation? Yeah. You know, when you talk about the Hawaiian kingdom, what are you, you know, it's like, now it has been so normalized. <laughs> we always occupy. Gee, you don't know that? <laughs> Come on, where you been? Let's just add to that, just to be clear, that even former Governor John Y. Hay himself said, exactly. if you don't know that Hawaii is under Indian occupation, uh, he said you, uh, they said you, uh, yeah. fact, I think his words were, you have to be illiterate. You have to be illiterate. You understand this. This is the former governor himself who yeah. said, yeah. who admitted. Yeah. And a practicing attorney. Correct. So, you know, when people, again, you know, going back to the old, I mean, 20 years ago, you used this kind of yeah. language, and people are like, what's the craziest out yeah. there? These guys are nuts. But the point is, even high school students, students today understand this. This is how prevalent, uh, the, and then going back to the question about Mount Mauna Kea and the process, you know, so, you know, I had conversations with uh, some of the astronomers who were like, you know, Kalekoa, this all went through the courts, and the courts went through the permit process, and you guys had all this time to fight this. And I said, wait, wait, wait stay back. Hawaiians have been fighting this for a long time. Yeah. And we understand those courts, there is no legal remedy yeah. in those courts. We understand that. It's unfair. First of all, even if you want to question, understand who the courts benefit, who they work for, yeah. what constitution, we already understand it. So when you look at what's going on today, it's coming from a clear understanding that they understand this whole process um, was already in the fix, as you would say, you know, that's why my, my uh, or better uncle yet, would say, they, you know, they understand that they're you know, illegal. As I was saying, my uncle said, you know, when you go chicken fight, you never, you never bet against the house team. You know, you know, you know, fight your chicken against the house chicken. It's already set up for the house chicken, right? They already set up the referee and the rules to benefit themselves. So it's like uh, you already understand you're being set up. So you know, it's not Hawaiians are going, oh yes, we, we lost this court case and that's it, we give up. See, the Hawaiians already understand that the courts, you know, itself. Are unlawful, are, are, are using legal theories and laws that really have no place here, not just in a theoretical sense, but we're talking historical sense. And again, as been said many, many times, all you got to show, very simply, demonstrate through evidence how the Hawaiian Islands have been taken lawfully by the United to be States. By, by the United States. That's all you got to show. Yeah. But the reality, like I said, even high school students know today yeah. that the evidence is not there. Well, the you know, is not there. you know that brings me up to the to this next point. Uh, what took place on March fifth, when Dexter, you represented two fishermen from Molokai, mm -hmm. 
Yes. And explain how that's going to, what happened there, that's going to be applied to Mauna Kea, if can. Okay. Um, and, and just to put it in a quick context, um, I represent uh, two of the Molokai fishermen, and that, that's an incident that occurred uh, last year sometime, where these four Molokai fishermen were actually protecting the resources of the Molokai area, the water resources. As it turns out, um, in the protection of their resources, they were wrongfully accused of committing certain crimes. Um, they were, of course, in the circuit court of the Second Circuit, and it allowed me, in the representation of two of the Molokai fishermen, to bring the motion to dismiss, a procedural motion, asking the court to dismiss the complaint or charges against my clients, because again, the court has no lawful jurisdiction over this matter, as we discussed earlier, because this is not the state of Hawaii. This is, in fact, the Hawaiian Kingdom, so these courts are not lawfully constituted. And on top of that, they are administering the wrong law, which is state of Hawaii law as opposed to Hawaiian Kingdom law. So at the motion to dismiss, um, the legal documents were filed, and a motion was held, uh, a hearing was held, an evidentiary hearing was held on March 5th before Judge uh, Cardoza. At the time of the hearing, uh, I was allowed to, and I called my expert witness, Dr. Keanu Sai, up to the stand to testify. Uh, we qualified him as an expert. We went through his qualifications, and we call that vaudire. Um, at the end of the vaudire examination, um, I asked the court, uh, I requested that the court qualify Dr. Sai as an expert witness. Now, you have to understand, um, we've been expecting a battle all along um, that the forces that be, and in this case, the prosecutor would not want Dr. Sai to be qualified as an expert witness. So we expected him to object and to provide his reasons for why Dr. Sai should not be qualified, and we were prepared for that. As it turned out, this prosecutor had no objection. So with no objection, Dr. Um, Judge Cardoza qualified Dr. Sai as an expert. And so my question to Dr. Sai was simply this. You understand I'm bringing a motion to dismiss before, before the court uh, for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, yes. Um, can, um, with, your, with your research and your knowledge about this area, can you tell us why the court is not lawfully, or is the court lawfully constituted? And does it have subject matter jurisdiction? No, it's not lawfully constituted, and it does not have subject matter jurisdiction over this complaint. Can you explain why? And for about the next 40, 45 minutes, Dr. Sai essentially conducted um, a class and provided the court uh, with the Hawaiian history, mm -hmm. as it should have been told and has been denied all this time, all on the record, and explained to the court why this continues to be the Hawaiian kingdom and why these courts don't have or is not lawfully constituted. So we went through everything that was said earlier today. When that was completed, um, I thanked Dr. Sai for his testimony, and I said, oh, by the way, is there a way to fix the problem, so to speak? I, in summary, he goes, yes, I have, an, I have an opinion for that. And Dr. Sai quickly laid it out, how there can be an orderly transition um, for all of this to happen. So I thanked him, and, and when I was through, the prosecution, of course, has its opportunity at that time to cross-examine Dr. Sai and try to poke holes, so to speak, in any testimony that was provided. Again, the prosecutor stood up and said, no, um, no questions, Your Honor. In fact, that was one of the more impressive um, testimonies I've heard. Sat down and um, I proceeded to make my legal arguments um, and the court was about to rule and reminded me that in the pleading itself, I had asked that the court take judicial notice of certain matters, including Dr. Sai's expert opinion, a brief. So I thanked the court and I said, yes, we will ask that the court take ju judicial notice of all of these matters. Now, judicial notice is, is a, um, a court principle, so to speak, where they adopt what you ask for as undisputed, or essentially the facts. They prove it as undisputed facts. So we were asking the court to take judicial notice of all of this information. Again, the judge turned to the prosecutor and asked if he had any objection. <laughs> prosecutor said no objection. So the court at that point took all of the information we requested, judicially noticing it. Now, from a legal perspective, and our analysis is, once that's been accepted and judicially noticed, and it's actually considered undisputed, we've now proven our case that the Hawaiian Kingdom continues to exist. And once we've proven our case that the Hawaiian Kingdom continues to exist, we've also proven that the court is not lawfully constituted and does not have subject matter jurisdiction. So the only available remedy for the court at that time was to dismiss the complaint for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Despite the undisputed nature of the evidence that we provided, the court declined to do so. 
Um, and that matter presently is still being contested. So there's still efforts that are being made on behalf of my clients to challenge the court's ruling about that because we believe a strict analysis of the relevant facts, history, and legal uh, information we provided can only conclude, can only lead the appellate courts to conclude that the court should have dismissed the complaint for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. And, and the fact that the judge did not dismiss the case is the clear evidence that this is an unfair trial. That is the inherent evidence. It, it's, it's there. So you can't say, as Professor Williamson Chang at the law school says, you can't say the sun rises in the east and then say, okay, the sun rises in the west. You know, it doesn't work that way. So everyone's getting caught with this information. You know, and a lot of people don't realize why Dexter is making these arguments and why I've been saying that the Hawaiian Kingdom continues to exist as a state because in 1994, there was a court case called State of Hawaii versus Lorenzo that set the precedence on whether or not evidence can be provided that can conclude the coin kingdom continues to exist. Yeah. And for the last, well, since 1994, there's been a precedence where the Supreme Court and the appellate court have said on appeal that the defendants have not met their burden of providing conclusive evidence that the kingdom exists. Well, Dexter provided conclusive evidence because it's judicial notice that the Hawaiian Kingdom continues to exist as a state. And then for the judge to say, no, I'm still denying it. That basically undermines due process and a fair trial. What the judge should have done was dismiss the case and let the prosecution appeal and let it go through that process. So this is not trying to stop things in its track. It's going through a process, but what is happening as a result of defendants raising the evidence, what the action is being taken is they're not getting a due process. Again, speaking to an unfair trial, which is a war crime. You know, so you see how it all, it's, it, it's all connected. Yeah? And how it connects to Mauna Kea, of course, is that when we provided the cease and desist letter, that judicial notice, we basically told TMT and the Board of Regents by your own standards, now, we already know this information. We already know that Hawaii is illegally occupied and you don't actually no have no lawful authority here. But by, by your own court system, your own court in the state of Hawaii, the prosecutor has essentially acknowledged that the Hawaiian Kingdom continues to exist. So with all of this information, you cannot move forward. And if you move forward, you've been put on notice and any actions you take will be considered, will be reported as war crimes. Now, in the, in, in the criminal cases for uh, the arrests, the decision in the evidence hearing, the ruling that the court took judicial notice was done on behalf of the state of Hawaii through the prosecutor of Maui. That evidentiary ruling applies to every criminal case and every civil case that the state of Hawaii is involved with. So in this criminal case of trespassing, you don't, Dexter does not need to re-argue. He just needs to bring to the attention of the court the ruling and call for the dismissal. And that term that is used is called collateral estoppel. And that's a part of how this thing is being played out. Okay, we just have a few more minutes before we end. So final thoughts about what has taken place at Mauna Kea with uh, the Molokai fishermen and where do you think we're going? I, I mean, I just couldn't just jump right off what has been said. And that's why for me, I promote antagonism. <laughs> against an illegal system. The only way you reveal the illegality is that you must challenge it. And that's how I, you know, so what you see happening in the is just the beginning. You know, I want to see next year, I want to see 100 cases in the courts, maybe 500 cases in the courts, uh, which will, on the political sense, reveal again this, this political history, which will reveal to the courts to be truthful, be honest, uh, and you know, if, if justice is blind, then you know, and if, uh, if the United States and their court system uh, has any real sense of justice, they cannot but come to the conclusion that their existence in Hawaii is true and illegal occupation at this point. And so, and the only way, and I guess what I'm trying to say, it's our duty, it's our duty to bring this forward and reveal this 
you know, whether it's through the political stance, whether it's through getting arrested, whether it's protecting our natural resources, protecting our sacred sites, but at all times, and at all times, the dignity of truth. You know, as I say, is based upon the premise of love, truth, and, you know, this dignity to confront that which uh, we must confront. And so we don't really have a choice. Patriotism. We don't have a choice but to do what is right. Well, I would say I, w I would be nicer than Kaleko is being on himself. He's being hard on himself. I wouldn't say that he's antagonizing. What he's doing is he's invoking enlightenment. <laughs> so what he's doing that sounds is, bad. Yes, 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 he's invoking what many countries, the global, actually global aspirations. So he's invoking and implementing enlightenment. So that's what I would say. I might say one last thing about the young men and women. I said uh, their notion of kapu aloha is important. Um, and I've said it before because it's that conduct that, that, that they're exhibiting, that conduct that we actually have to exhibit in this transitional mm -hmm. phase as well. So that's how we deal with the foreigners because not only do we empower ourselves, we disarm them as well. Okay, 30 seconds. Well, one of the rules of the law of occupation, uh, bringing that back in, is there is what is called a requirement for temporary obedience. Obedience, not allegiance. Obedience to the occupier but when the occupier does not follow the rules of the law of occupation, that is when you do what you just said. That actually is a protected right under international law, where you have to challenge and be aggressive, but still not be violent. Yeah? Yeah. There is no call, call for obedience, temporary obedience, if you're not following the rules yourself. We now have to address that. So you see how everything just starts to play out when you start to use the terminology, the tools, and the information. And that, folks, brings us to, to a close. And uh, we're in future shows, we're gonna be talking about uh, the Swiss case that came up and several other issues. I'd like to thank uh, Dr. Keanu Sai for joining me, Professor Kaleiko Kael, and Attorney Dexter Kayama. Until we see you the next time, mahalo nui loa and ahui ho. And don't forget, light of enlightenment. Aloha. <laughs> <laughs>